Good morning, everyone. Great to see you. My name is Greg Paris, and happy Father's Day to all of you dads out there today. We want to talk about you this morning, and we want to encourage you to think about what it, what it would be as a dad that would make your children love you, the kind of dad your children will love. Now, on the, on the surface of that, you may think, well, that means having a good time, having fun, you know, doing some adventuresome things, but really it's, uh, it's a lot more intentional than that and perhaps more serious than that. And so we want to uh, look from our text today from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read two verses, 7 and 8. And let me give you some context here. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Corinth, and the Corinthian church was a wild-eyed church. These folks were pagans before the gospel got to their city, and so they were in all kinds of... Uh, um, bad behavior. The context here in chapter 11, he's talking about women who are showing up at the worship service without their heads covered, which was a cultural faux pas. I mean, they, 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 culturally and, and traditionally, women should have their heads covered in that part of the world. And of course, in the Middle East today, women still for religious and traditional reasons cover their heads and there are reasons for that. Um, but in this case, it's, the head covering piece is irrelevant to us. But the important principles involved in these, in these verses are very important to us because we learn responsibility and role as men and women, and especially as dads, and so we have much we can learn here. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to that text, and of course, we'll project the words on the screen. Our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so thank you for doing that as you're able. So the Apostle Paul said, verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head, since he, the man, is the image and glory of God. Now see that phrase. Man is the glory of God. Very important. But woman is the glory of man. See that phrase. Man is the glory of God. Woman is the glory of man. And then verse 8. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. So may God inspire us, instruct us today through this important story. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Now let's launch right into this. How can you become the dad your kids will love? On your outline, you'll see the first point that I want to make is this, that men have to lead courageously and they have to accept responsibility. Leading courageously, accepting responsibility. Now again, from our... From our passage today, man is the glory of God. Now, the word glory, there's, there's a variety of ways to define glory in this context. But here's one of the ways you can define it. It's the place from which an idea originates. So it's an original idea. Now, with that in mind, if glory means that man is the glory of God, the origination of God, here's what it means in this context. Men, listen to me, you are the first reference that your children have of God. You're the first reference point. When your children think about God, imagine a relationship with God, consider the nature and character of God, they will first think about you as their natural earthly father. So according to you, sir, is your God faithful, reliable, protective, a provider, a stabilizer, a counselor, and careful? Or is your God unfaithful, unreliable, unstable, unpredictable, foolish, or uncaring? 
Is your God disinterested? Does your God avoid conversation? Is your God preoccupied with other things and have no time for you? Again, fathers, your children's first impression of who God is comes from their relationship with you. It comes from man. Man is the glory of God. So in the household, in your house, the man is where the opinion of God originates. The idea, the assumptions we make about who God is and how we can relate to God come directly from the relationship you have with your father. That's why when we worship songs uh, in the service or we pray prayers or we, we read the scripture and we use phrases like God our Father or Heavenly Father, it's a difficult phrase for some of you. And the reason it's a difficult phrase for you is because your earthly father didn't live up to his potential. And because he failed in certain ways in your life, that has impacted your life. So when you hear God referred to as a heavenly father or God your father, that causes you to wobble and to wonder who this God is and what he's like. It has direct impact on your life. Now, so we see the phrase, man is the glory of God, but we also see the phrase, the woman is the glory of the man. So men, you are where the opinion of God originates in your wife as well as your children. It's where the opinion of God originates. And listen to this, she is a direct reflection of you. The woman is the glory of the man. So everybody's opinion of you will originate from assessing your wife. You say, well, that's not fair. You may not like it, but this is the order that God has structured. If your wife is broken, their opinion of you will be broken. If your wife needs to be healed, then it means something in you needs to be healed because she is the glory of the man. She is a reflection of you. You're a reflection of God. She is a reflection of you. Do you believe me when I say that all the services so far this weekend that it gets really, really quiet right here at this point in the sermon? Very serious. Look on the screen at Ephesians chapter 5. This is a more familiar passage to some. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Okay, so Jesus has a bride just like husbands have a wife. And so, and so what is Jesus' response to his bride? Well, he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So I don't present my wife to God for healing. Rather, I am the healing agent in my wife's life so that I might present her to God radiant without stain, holy and blameless. It is the man's responsibility to bring wholeness and health both to his children and to his wife. When I'm with other pastors who are men and I'm in, a, in an environment where their spouses are present, their wives are present, and maybe I'm sharing in some kind of event there or, or uh, a ministry opportunity where pastors, men are providing leadership, I always note the attitude, 
the countenance, the demeanor, the spirit of their wives. Why do I do that? Because I learn more about the man observing his wife than I do listening and watching him. So if uh, a peer of mine is up in front preaching or giving a keynote address in some conference or whatever, I will note where his wife is sitting and I will watch her. And if she's fiddling with her phone or rolling her eyes or going, oh, brother, like that, that's not good. It's not a good sign. So men have to come to terms with the God-given role and responsibility we have to reject passivity. Men tend to be passive both socially and spiritually. This is, I don't know where this comes from. It's part of our fallen nature. It's part of, of the corruption that we inherit uh, by, with our nature. But men inherently, our instinct is to become passive and to disengage socially and spiritually. I've observed this for 40 years in pastoral ministry. I've had to fight the tendency in my own life that men I observe tend in general to withdraw and lean away from their responsibility socially and spiritually. And I've watched this over and over again in homes where wives who love God and, and husbands who are trying to get it right according to God's structure and, and, and role and function, and because they will not reject the passivity that they're inclined to, these relationships don't go well and many times they don't end well. And so I say to you men, if you want to be the kind of father, the kind of dad that your children will love, you have to, you have to lead courageously and you have to accept responsibility. Your inclination, and I get it, is to lean away from that responsibility. I'm just inviting you to lean into your responsibility, to recognize the need to engage in your children socially and to engage in your family as a leader spiritually. Here's number two. Write this down. If you're going to be the kind of dad your children love, you need to practice listening. Practice listening. Now, listening is critical to understanding. I mean, we've all heard this. You can't learn anything when you're talking, right? And so it's axiomatic. We, we, we get the concept. Look at James 1.19 on the screen with me. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen. Slow to speak, slow to become angry. I don't know uh, how it was with you or is with you. When we were raising our two boys, it was sometimes difficult for them to get my attention. You know, the game was on, or I'm reading the paper. Remember when you used to get a paper newspaper? Remember that? Some of you are old enough to remember a paper newspaper. And back in the day, if you're reading a paper newspaper, the, the child would, will actually come up and put their hand on top of the paper and push it down just to try to get your attention. And, you know, that's limited success right there. But sometimes it's hard for children to get our attention. You know, hurry up, I'm watching the game. So when you do give them your attention, do they get all of your attention? It's challenging, isn't it? Do you offer eye contact? Do you offer empathy to your children? Heard one little guy, he walked up to his dad and said, Dad, grabbed him by the face and got his attention and said, Dad, I want you to listen to me with your eyes. My dad uh, worked long hours in a family-owned grocery store, and so he came home late every evening. But I remember, especially in the summertime, like this time of year, 
and I'd always be outside playing and there was usually a ball involved. And I can remember many nights when my friends finally just got tired or they had to go home for dinner or whatever. My dad was going to be a little bit later. And so I would wait. I would linger. I can still feel my body standing in the side yard just taking a baseball and just throwing it as high as I could in the air and then running under it and catching it. Just playing with myself until my dad got home. Because I knew when my dad got home that he would make time for me. He was exhausted from his work. He was hungry, wanted to eat, but he would postpone all of that stuff. And he would literally get out of his car. And if he saw me in the yard, he'd come and shoot hoops with me or he'd play catch with me until I was satisfied with that. That's a good thing, isn't it? Not a great memory. And so, and so he, he was attentive that way. He, he was willing to listen to me. Um, I became a Christian when I was 16, and you've heard me tell in recent weeks that I actually prayed with my dad when he became a Christian. So I, I led my dad to Christ. I prayed the prayer with him. I was about 18 and a half years old, and he was 43. And because of those circumstances, I became the spiritual leader of my family. So when the holidays came around, Christmas, Thanksgiving, that sort of thing, my dad would just look at me and say, Greg, would you offer the prayer? Or, Greg, would you say the words? Or when Grandma died, you know, Greg, would you preach the funeral for Grandma? And so I was like the patriarch of the family. And that went on for a number of years. But at, at a certain point, my dad never talked to me about this. But we showed up at a, at a holiday one, one time, and I just remember the moment. I thought, well, okay, Dad's going to ask me to pray. And Dad went on and said some nice words, and then he said, and I'm going to pray. And Dad, Dad just took the mantle of responsibility and leadership that was rightfully his, and he took it off of me, and he put it on his own shoulders. And for the rest of his life, he led that way, compassionately, sacrificially, graciously, generously. And we were so proud of him for that. And it's because he was sensitive to us, and he was willing to lead, and because he was willing to listen. We could all stand to be better listeners. Yeah, you cannot develop faith without it. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 17 on the screen. This is so important. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word about Christ. So how, do, how does faith develop in anyone's life? In everyone's life, how does it develop? It comes by hearing the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word. There's, some of us don't have the faith to believe God because we won't listen. We won't listen even to the preaching of the gospel. There are, folks, there are folks in this room right now, no doubt, who have not come to a meaningful faith in your life, and the reason you, you haven't is because you won't listen. You won't hear it. Well, maybe you're, you're, you're in the room, you're, you're hearing the sound, you're listening to the words, but you're not really listening. You're not absorbing the truth of what's being offered. And all I can tell you is that faith will not, cannot, spark in your own heart until you listen, till you hear, and faith will be born. There are more uh, people today employed in the psychological sciences than at any time in history. There are more counselors and therapists and clinical psychologists, this whole range of professionals in the psychological sciences. There are more people employed in this category than ever before in our history. There are, there are scores and scores of people, millions of people, who pay good money, uh, sometimes hundreds of dollars per hour to go see these professionals. 
for counseling. The vast majority, and no one rightly knows what the percentage is, but I would just, my opinion is the vast majority of people who pay good money, sometimes really good money, to go see a counselor do not go there for information or for counseling. The reason they go is because they know there will be someone there who will listen to them. Pay for someone just to pay attention to me. It happens all the time. Do you know how painful it is to feel like you're not interesting? I do. <laughs> he said tongue in cheek. <laughs> really, I'm not bitter about it. It's fine. But it's painful to feel like you're not interesting. How painful then would it be for a child to walk in with an issue and walk out knowing that you were not interested in them. We have to practice listening. Some of us need more practice to get better at it. Look at 1 John chapter 5. I'll put this on the screen. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, what's that phrase? He hears us. He hears us. He hears us. Isn't that great? And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we've asked of him. In other words, when you call on God, you've got all of him. You've got his attention. He's listening and he answers every prayer. He'll answer your prayers. He hears your prayers. He answers your prayers. In fact, he will, he will, he will go to the end of his power to accommodate the needs of his children because he's a good father. He's a good father. He practices listening. Let me go to the third thing now to be a dad that your kids will love. Number three is offer affirmation. Offer affirmation. Now, you'll rem remember with me that Jesus started out pretty modestly. He's 30 years old. He's still living at home. He's still working the family business in this blue-collar carpentry shop. He has no accolades, no recognition, no miracles on his resume. He has no followers on Facebooks. Heck, he doesn't even have any participation trophies in his bedroom. Now, if he had been alive today, he'd have a whole room full of participation trophies. Don't get me started on that. He has nothing. He has nothing. One day, the heavens opened up while he was being baptized, and his heavenly father makes this declaration loud enough for everyone in the area to hear. Everyone present heard this. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So what did God his father say to Jesus? He said, I love you. You're my beloved son. I'm proud of you. I'm well pleased. And you've got the right stuff. You are made of the right raw material, son. You're going to be something. You're going to be great. And, and so this was all before the first miracle. Put it in context. Today, too many fathers withhold affirmation until the child has done something spectacular. Perform a miracle, son, and then I'll affirm you. You know, score the goal, make the A, accomplish some task, then you get affirmation. Jesus got the affirmation and, that, and then found that that released him to go out and do miracles. It's not a coincidence. The sequence is important. You cannot wait to affirm your children after they've produced a string of successes. You need to affirm them now, affirm them first. 
You affirm them first and then watch them start to achieve because one will follow the other. I regret this in my life now. I was, I was pretty good with our boys about this. But if I had to do it over again, I would spend more time than I did affirming them. And here would be my rule of thumb. And, and again, this is somewhat counterintuitive, especially for men. But when you feel like you're affirming them too much, I just, I feel, that's too much. Like they're going to get a big head or they're going to get proud or they're going to get full of themselves and they're going to become incorrigible because I just keep pumping them up. Here, here would be my rule of thumb. Affirm them until I was uncomfortable and then affirm them just a little more. I don't think you can affirm your kids too much. It would be virtually impossible to do. You are my son. These are the words they need to hear. I love you. I'm proud of you. You've got what it takes. You can do anything you put your mind to. To say to your daughter, I love you. I'm so proud of you. You are precious to me. You're more valuable to me than anything in the world. You're going to be a great person. One of the ways you affirm your children is by loving their mother. Sir, listen to me. Perhaps if you ask me what is the most important thing you can do to influence your children in a positive way, I may very well put at the top of the list, love their mother well. Love their mother well. Because they're watching. You will be modeling for them what covenant relationship looks like. You will be demonstrating to them how it's done. And it not only models for them what they can do in their lives and their future, but it reassures them in the contemporary moment of their lives that they are safe, that they are secure, that my parents love each other. That makes me feel safe. I feel the strength of that. Your children should regularly see you expressing physical affection to your wife with proper boundaries. Now, in my house with our boys growing up, it was like a locker room. So just think locker room. And because we're, you know, boys and we were robust and I'm very physical. You know, I may put my arm around one of our boys and say, I love you. Or I might just walk up to him and put him, put him in a headlock and punch him. It's the same message. Man, I love you. I love you so much. Because, you know, it's physical. So we're kind of physical around our house. Now that's with boys. Girls are different, perhaps. I don't know. Never raised a girl. Thank you. It's hard enough the way it was. But I would regularly chase Beth around the house in front of the boys. I would wait till they were both in the space. And then I would just reach for her. And she would go, no, no. And I would take off and she would run. And I would chase her. I'd chase her around the kitchen table with the boys just standing there. And then I would catch her. And when I would catch her, then I would bend her over the table. Your children should regularly see you embracing one another and kissing each other. You have no idea what it does for them. It's powerful. Now, we may have done too much of that because now our boys do it in front of us with their spouses. And I said, look, guys, I don't need to see that. <laughs> but they're still stuck. Yeah. 
Sir, if you will love your daughters well, listen to me, you'll boy-proof them. Because boys, immemorial, boys has, have given love in order to get sex. So if you have a daughter who's never heard, I love you, you're precious, you're the most valuable thing in the world, and you don't have to cater to anybody because you're loved. And you say it enough and you express it enough that they believe it. The first time a 15-year-old mistake with a zipper whispers to your daughter, I love you, because he's got other agenda on his mind, she will be able to look at him and say, look, look, bub, I've, I've been hearing my dad tell me that my whole life, and I don't need it from you. Bug off. It's a big deal. Girls lacking that unconditional love and affection from their fathers oftentimes will give away sex in order to get the love they need. Happens thousands of times every day for centuries in the world. Happens all the time. So boys will give love in order to get sex and girls will give sex in order to get the love they need. But the unconditional love, affection, and appreciation, the affirmation from dad, from his words, from his actions, will actually ensure, actually protect, will actually provide for both sons and daughters a sense of personal esteem, worth, and value, and they will be able to pick up on the model and select for themselves effective mates in their future. It matters. This stuff matters. It matters. It's a big deal. So offer affirmation. Your children have many, many miracles locked up inside of them. And those miracles will all be released if they know they are affirmed and loved, whether they're doing well or whether they're doing poorly, whether they're happy, they're sad, they're in a good season or a bad season. If they know that they're loved and affirmed no matter what, they'll be liberated to pursue their very best. And miracles will happen. Last point, write this down if you would. Remember you have clay feet. Remember you have clay feet. Sometimes when your children struggle, I'm about to tell you something now. I'm about to tell you a thing. Sometimes when your children struggle, they can't be reached by your victories or by your strengths. Listen to me, Dad. This is especially true if you've experienced a level of personal or social or professional success. You, you may have many friends. You may have a very successful career. You may be a person who's achieved a level of status or achievement or notoriety. People in the community know you, appreciate you. And the effect it may have on your child, rather than inspire them, may cause them to wonder. I know this is counterintuitive, but this is what happens many times with successful people. Your child may wonder, what could I ever do to impress my dad or my mom? Look what they've achieved. Look what they've acquired. Look at their status. I wonder what I could ever do to measure up to that. I want to put this statement on the screen because I don't want you to forget it. I want you to, I want you to get a hold of this. Sometimes the only way to get through to your child is by getting real, getting raw, confessing your sins, revealing your broken places, your weaknesses, and your vulnerabilities. Sometimes your child cannot relate to your victories. 
only can relate to your failures and the things you hide and don't want anyone else to see. Let me illustrate this way. Look at John chapter 20, verse 20. This is when he had said this, Jesus showed them, the disciples, this is right after the resurrection, showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Now the next verses in John 20 include this, this event with Thomas, the disciple. You remember Thomas? He was called the twin. One of the 12 was not with them when Jesus first appeared to them after the resurrection. So the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas responds and says, well, unless I see his hands, you know, the print of the nails, put my finger into the print of those nails. And unless I put my hand in his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with him. Jesus came, the doors were locked, but Jesus came in anyway uh, in this resurrected body. And he's in the midst of them, peace be with you, he said. And then he turns to Thomas and he said, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. He said, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Now you see the disciples were in the room and they were all talking about resurrection and empty tombs and glory and we've seen the Lord and Thomas is over there going, I can't identify with that stuff. I can't identify with all that that victory and that success and that glory and that breakthrough. He said, I'm over here in my doubts because I haven't seen the Lord yet. And he's saying, show me the real man and then I'll believe. Bring, Bring him back down to my level. Give me something I can relate to. I've seen the miracles when I was with Jesus, just like everyone else, the, the calming the storm, multiplying food, resuscitating the dead. He said, I've seen all that. But now Thomas says, now I need to see the scars because I can relate to the scars. I can relate to pain. I can relate to brokenness. I can identify with that. See, the scars were not the symbol of the resurrection. The scars were the symbol of the death of Jesus. So Jesus is now in a resurrected body, but he still has his scars. So the day when you meet Jesus, sooner or later, and that day's coming, isn't it? When we see Jesus, let me tell you what you'll, you can expect to see. You can see his scars. Because he still carries them. Mm-hmm. He keeps his scars so as to identify with us in our pain and our brokenness and our wounds. He says to all of us, look at my hands. Put your finger right there in my hands. Look at my side, put your finger right in that that wound. So don't be unbelieving, but believing that I can meet you even in the lowest of your lows and bring hope to your life. That's the reason for the scars. So we have a generation today that desperately needs to know their father isn't perfect either. So dads, fathers, we don't have to be perfect. We just have to be authentically present. I've had this conversation with both of our boys, now adults, and so man to man we've had this conversation. And both of them privately have said to me the same thing. Dad, the moments when you had the most influence in our lives as a father was when you confessed your sins to us. The time that I remember most poignantly is the day when you ask me when you ask me to forgive you 
for failing as a father. Powerful. Powerful. And the higher you've climbed in your life, in all of the categories, the more important it will be for you to be open and vulnerable with your children when you make a mistake, when you fail, when you need to confess your sin, when you need to ask their forgiveness. Life-changing, powerful. Well, do you want to be the kind of dad your children love? These are some of the key ingredients. Now, let me just conclude with this. I know that many of you in the room today had a good dad, lived an honorable life, and did, the, did, did well. Nobody's perfect. They did okay, and you benefited from that. I'm also aware that there's a good number of people in the room today, and your dad wasn't even close to what you needed. In fact, for some of you, he was a... He was a failure. He's a mess. Now, let me give you some perspective right now because I know you carry the wounds from that. I know there are issues in your life. I know there are. It's, you can't avoid it. It's part of the deal. But let me give you this perspective. Probably, more than likely, almost for sure, the reason your dad didn't give you what you needed is because your dad didn't get what he needed. And as it turns out, it's really, really hard to give someone something you don't have. And that was probably true with your dad. And so here's the invitation I want to give you today. Cut him some slack. I know it was hard. I know it was bad. And for some of you, it was just outright evil. You've got to let him go. Because he didn't know. He didn't know what to do. He was more confused than you were. So you just have to let it go. And may God give you the grace to do that. Now here's the challenge. The challenge is you've been in this service today and you've heard the perspective that I've shared and God is speaking to you and you realize now as a father, as a grandfather, as a husband, that God is calling you to higher places to more significant influence. And you, and you realize, how can I possibly give the people who are most precious to me what they need when I didn't get it myself? Now, here's the good news. The God that we serve, the grace he provides, can fill every hole left in your life. And he will reparent you. God will refather you. He will fill all of those holes. And here's what we want to pray today. That those wounds in your life that have remained scab-like, you know, it just, they bleed easy and they hurt. And, they, and it's been that, that way for years. Here's what we want to pray. That the grace of God will turn all of those scabs into scars. The scars only remind you of what happened, but there's no pain with the scar. The scab... Always remind you of the pain, and it's very difficult to manage. So we want to turn scabs to scars today and allow the grace of God to fill you with what you need. And then the grace of God that will give you what you are now commissioned to give to your children and grandchildren and your spouse. And only God can do it. But good news is, He can. 
and he will. And I've seen him do it so many times. Now, listen, I'm sorry. I, I do not have that perspective. My, as I've described, my dad, he, he did good. He did well. And so I benefit from that. But I'm sorry some of you didn't have that advantage. I'm really sorry. My heart hurts for you. I know it's painful, and especially on this, the Father's Day. So I f I'm feeling it. Having said that, though, we want to live in the grace of God, live in His healing grace and His restoring grace, and the grace necessary, sufficient for every need in your life so that you can be the man, the husband, the father, the grandfather you need to be, God needs you to be, your family needs you to be, so that you can give these wonderful gifts of honor and grace and love to your family. So let's pause for a moment and let's pray about these things and ask for God's grace. Lord, you know that we need your help. All of us do. This is not an easy job. This is, this is the highest of callings. And for some of us, Lord, we confess we're, we, we're charged now to give what we didn't receive. We thank you today that there is one who can fill the holes in our heart. Change the scabs to a scar. Lord, even now, right now, begin to do that, do that work, that work of your grace. Fill us with every grace, every gift, every touch of healing, restoration that we need. And then the power and the courage to lead and the willingness to accept the responsibility all the responsibility you've called us to help us to practice more and more the art of listening and to offer affirmation and ultimately we remember we have clay feet and it's good to let our children see them once in a while so in all these ways oh God we call upon you you're our only hope. Remind us all that it's never too late. It's never too late to say yes, to hear the word of God and to let faith spark in our hearts and to stand up from this point and to go forward honorably and effectively as a man, as a father. Hear our prayer we pray today. Everyone said, amen. Would you stand with us?